Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we continue our in-depth conversations about race and racism. We're talking with Patrice Willoughby, Managing Director and Head of Diversity and Inclusion for the Signal Group in Washington, D.C. It offers counsel in strategic communication, public affairs, and governmental relations. She was the former Chief of Staff for late Congresswoman Stephanie Tubbs Jones from Cleveland and former Executive Director of the Congressional Black Caucus. Joining us for this series also is our co-host, Judge Gail Williams-Byers of the South Euclid Municipal Court. Our topic today is code switching, a technique used by many African Americans to fit better into white culture. Patrice, talk about code switching and if you could just define it for an audience. I know that some people know that it's speaking two languages, it's speaking two dialects, but it's seems like it's more than that. It's it's being sometimes in two cultures. Certainly. So code switching is the practice of alternating between languages um, or uh, between standard English and vernacular English. And within the context of my life, you know, I'm African-American, it is the practice of going between standard English, which I would use with uh, in a business context or in an educational context often, and the more easy language that I would use with people uh, whom I'm familiar with, friends and family. Is this something that you learned as an adult, as a professional, or is this something that starts as a child? I think code switching particularly for aspirational African Americans is has always been a part of the socialization that parents give their children um, because it's a tool uh, both for social mobility but it has also been a way that African American families keep their children safe and teach them to uh, be safe because um, we have always been aware of systemic racism and uh, the use of standard English as opposed to African-American vernacular English has been a way for 
African-Americans to gain social acceptance, but also it's a way for um, that, that helps black folks teach their children how to navigate the world and to limit the risk that they will be affected by systemic racism and bias. Some of the the research that I've done on this, though, uh, some young people especially are questioning whether they should be obligated to code switch, whether they should – whether in code switching it uh, denies their true identity. Um, how would you respond to that? I think that that's a really interesting um, discussion that's going on right now because, indeed, there are discussions in which code switching has been um, characterized as a performative expression. Um, but I think that um, we're really talking about identity, and that can be um, – characterized according to your your sort of generational um, place where you fit, you know, age-wise as well. Um, I know that in our current discussions, I have a lot of younger friends and colleagues and co-workers who believe that not being able to bring their authentic expression of Blackness uh, into every environment does a disservice to who they are. Um, I have um, peers for whom uh, code switching is more um, a sort of um, where you fall on the slider of identity and how you express yourself um, because it has been so inculcated into how we work and uh, navigate the world. So I think that both... Um, uh, streams of thought are really valid, um, but the current discussions about systemic racism and the fact that young people are very aware of how uh, code switching has, or the, the, the absence of code switching has really affected, um, you know, Black people's interaction with police and authority figures um, is really framing a lot of that discussion because at the root of it, it is a desire for acceptance and uh, acceptance of all things which are authentic. Bringing in uh, Judge Gail Williams-Byers at this point, uh, uh, Judge um Talk about this in in your life because uh, you and I have had some discussions uh, about this, uh, and and you say it's an integral part of your uh, professional and personal life. This ability to switch. Indeed, um, I think. Well, I know that for so many professionals, code switching just becomes essentially another college course that you that you master or another life course that you master because the way that society sort of subtly and sometimes not so subtly dictates to African-Americans or um, even Muslim Americans or others is that there must be conformity and there must be conformity to European standards. And in so doing, that does not mean that you completely abandon your your heritage or your historical experiences, but it does mean 
that the clear signal is sent very early on that that is not acceptable in multiple or most important environments. And when I say most important environments, I mean in professional environments and even in some social environments and some social settings. And, you know, I think, uh, Patrice, you might agree with me. I remember being a small child and I learned code switching, uh, I would say inadvertently, meaning I don't believe it was my parents' necessary or natural intention to teach code switching to me and my siblings, but it was absolutely part of, I don't know that that's what they knew they were doing. I knew it was certainly part of their expectation. Why? Because Black parents always tend to want their children to do better than them. And they know what that path entails. They know what has to happen. And part of it begins with just that sheer ability to communicate. And so being the daughter of a preacher and spending many, 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 many Sundays in, in church learning you know, Easter speeches and how to, to talk in front of an audience and they're getting, you know, constructive feedback on those experience experiences sharpened that skill set. But that skill set, and I know my parents knew that, that skill set was never intended to be harnessed only in the church house. But that constructive feedback was necessary because I would one day be dispatched into the world, which is dominated by European culture. And so Yes, I can sit around the dining room table and my vernacular can change and it can be particularly relaxed in that environment. It became really clear that that was not the vernacular that I was expected to use, nor the lexicon that I was expected to use outside those doors of home. And so what you experience, though, as a child because I really believe code switching extends just beyond the mere language that we are talking about, the the easy vacillation between the languages. But it also goes to everything else about us. It goes to, you know, sometimes what music you listen to, what clothes you wear, how you present yourself. Um, And so what I knew very early on is when I had Black friends that called me an Oreo Um, not referencing the Oreo cookies, but the idea that you are black on the outside and white on the inside because of the way that you spoke or the way that you dressed or the way that you carried yourself or the company that you kept. All of those are multiple elements of code switching because in the black community, it's understood that our natural heritage, our natural selves are not well appreciated. And so the only way that we're going to get that C-suite promotion is if we shed the Afro puffs and wear a relaxed hairstyle because that's more Europeanized. If we are more apt to listen to country music as opposed to Tupac or, you know, classical music as opposed to NWA, these are the things that present as non-threatening to the decision makers. And because it's non-threatening, then it makes it acceptable. And um, that's the thing that I think can be, that that needs to be appreciated in the grand scope of code switching. But, you know, I would presume, Patrice, you've probably had, I, I don't know too many folks in my inner circle who hasn't had that experience of being called the Oreo 
but also understanding very quickly that code switching is a key in and of itself. It can either unlock professional um, acceleration, or for some of us, it can be the difference between life or death. Um, Take, for example, Professor Henry Louis Gates and the experience that he had just a few short years ago while being arrested, allegedly burglarizing his own home. Imagine if he were dressed far more relaxed than he otherwise would, even if he's the rightful homeowner. Imagine if he had locks in his hair or if he had his earphones on and he was, you know, jamming to the latest songs by, you know, Ice Cube or N.W.A. or Tupac or any of those. Imagine how that could have turned way, 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 way south. But you had a black man who is a Harvard professor who's able to essentially de-escalate a situation using code switching so that it doesn't result in loss of life. That, I think, is a bigger um, and even more pronounced issue that sort of deserves an audience. So so we're talking uh, in these conversations about racism and, and race. Um, I hear both of you talking, and what strikes me is that if we're talking about systemic racism, isn't this systemic racism that you are expected to moderate your behavior and your speech to meet a European or a white culture standard? Well, absolutely. And I think, but I think that, you know, for, for many people, though, it is, um, the, it is a discussion um, of also of, of identity, because uh, code switching is a tool for social mobility. And as the judge has indicated, it's also um, uh, a tool for remaining safe. And I go to, you know, the talk that parents always give their children, you know, if you have um, any interaction with the authorities or the police. So, you know, turn down your music, um, you know, adjust your posture, um, use good manners, speak properly. Um, I think that what a lot of younger people are are really asserting now is that instead of critiquing these African-American modes of expression, we should really focus on uh, the critique of the system that um, penalizes people for uh, being their authentic selves. And I think that, um, you know, it's going to be, um, as we go through that Um, analysis, you know, in our country right now, we're going to have to balance that uh, movement toward acceptance and acceptance of authenticity with there are real life um, examples. I mean, in the business environment, uh, for example, everyone has to speak a common language in order to get projects done. I mean, that is, it's kind of a um, you know, you have to you have to have a level set in order to, um, you know, even build a culture that does foster uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion because that's the only way that people understand each other. So, how we go about that process um, and uh, sort of teach um, the dominant culture about 
uh, African-American expression and create a better environment that is more inclusive, um, you know, we will probably see the shift away from a solely European-centered uh, environment. There are a couple of studies that are out, and I'd love to get both of you to comment on this. Uh, one is the uh, three-eighths, uh, that people judge you from eight feet away for eight seconds and your first eight words, mm -hmm. and they characterize you as such. The other one is the 70-20-10 rule. People judge your credibility 70% about how you sound, 20% about how you look, and 10% on what you actually say. Now, if those are standards, um, we've got a tough hill to climb here. Well, you know, it that it is true that um, that is a tough hill to climb, but there's also um, there's also an interesting biological basis on difference as well in that, um, you know, our brains are predisposed to unconscious um, bias um, and discrimination because um, we, you know, apparently our brains move toward the path of least resistance. So there's a slight biological predetermination for that. And then what's layered on top of it is, um, systemic racism uh, and bias and socialization of, of the individual. Um, I do believe it's very true, though, that those initial impressions, I mean, you know, I've, I always heard that from my parents, you know, appearances count um, and ensure that you speak properly. So, um, you know, there's, it's, it's absolutely true that people don't remember a lot of the substance of what you say uh, because the manner in which you say it is very important. And before anyone can really hear what the substance of the discussion is, they are making an automatic value judgment based on appearance. I think that uh, any African-American in the business environment um, has had that experience um, and, you know, in, in any environment in which, you know, you find people who are professional and who also are able to code switch. Judge Gale, do you want to jump in on this? No, I think that what Patricia said is absolutely spot on. Uh, what I would say, though, know, taking it a step further is I, I believe that, you know, in the words of um, Chandra Arthur, who did a fantastic TED Talk, on this very topic is that code switching in and of itself or the expectations around it or that are embedded in it absolutely threatens diversity. I mean, it, it threatens diversity in, in just about every aspect of life where the expectation exists. And that is because we do lack the ability to see the true authentic person for who they are. Because every time they're presented in a different environment, it is a slightly, what, what she refers to as a slightly more edited version of themselves. Meaning, you know, I'm changing how I speak because this crowd 
prefers for me to speak this way. I change how I look or how I dress or how I comb my hair because this is what the expectation is. Imagine, you know, 15 or 20 or 25 years ago when as a black woman, you'd be told that, hey, listen, you need to get rid of those Afro puffs or you're going to get fired. Not you're not going to get promoted or, you know, you may it may take longer for you to work your way up. But you're just going to be without an ability to take care of yourself and your family financially. And what you have to do in order to preserve that is you have to shed your whole heritage. You have to share at least the the outward expression of that and save that for home. But don't bring that here as if there's something so offensive about who you are and where you came from and what you celebrate best about yourself that in order to keep a roof over your head, you have to hide that. And instead you, you know, you listen to music you likely never would have listened to before, or you hang out at places that you would have never thought were your taste or your style, or you, again, you speak a language that isn't really your authentic language, but it's the one that allows you to pay the bills. Or, you know, you, when you're hanging out, you, you may drink, when that's really not something that you care to do. Why? Because you are, again, it's almost like putting on a personal slipcover. And who you present to society is not really the individual under the slipcover. It's the shape of them. And yeah, some parts of it is familiar, but there's so much about them that's missing. And when we, again, it, it continue to accept a society that has made this a part of its systematic fiber. This is the fabric of American society and the expectation that, you know, Black folks will sound and look and portray themselves more white because that doesn't threaten. That's not as threatening or that's more conforming. And that's what becomes accepting is when you conform, you're accepted. Then I think that we really run the risk of losing out on so much. We, we, run the risk of losing out on the richness that diversity has to offer and every other benefit that comes along with it. And so there's, I, I think, a bit of a ways to go, but I certainly believe that I know that Patrice is spot on with her observation of, of how that affects, but also how you have a whole generation of young people who are completely rejecting this notion that they should have to change anything about who they are or where they come from or how they communicate so as to massage the, the sensibilities of those, even if they are decision makers, because they are just that committed and beholden to who they are. And you know, perhaps there, there's space to applaud that, but at the same time, there needs to be a baseline understanding that you're right, uh, projects don't get done if you've got several members and everybody's speaking a little bit differently or a lot differently. And you can never re really reach the end goal. Let me ask. Then, go ahead, Patrice. Oh, I, go was, ahead. I, was, I was going to say that, you know, I think that a lot of it when I when I talk to um, a lot of uh, younger people, too, I mean, they're they're so um, prescient. They're so uh, very attuned to the fact that, you know, economically speaking, um, 
culturally, um, black culture is a huge economic engine. And what they see is that uh, there's this bifurcation between the acceptance of the mo- of the monetization of black culture, but at the same time, they are not able to be black people in white spaces. And so that is that's that dichotomy that they're rejecting because it's if it is good enough for um, you know corporations to want to align to things which are um, black culturally, then I should be able to uh, wear my twists in the workplace. And, uh, you know, ironically, uh, there's a, a bill that has been adopted by a number of states, the Crown Act. Uh, a friend of mine has been instrumental in, in having this um, pushed and introduced in different states, which is um, a bill that actually d- um, prohibits discrimination against natural hairstyles. Because even in 2020, um, you know, that that's necessary in order for black women to be able to progress and to not have natural hair be considered unprofessional. Um, so I think that that, that double consciousness um, is something that younger people are rejecting because it does take up a huge degree of energy in having to constrain who they are authentically um, in order to um, exist in in spaces and where they live and work. Well, let me follow up with that. Uh, You work, uh, among other things, in in diversity and inclusion. is corporate America changing the definitions of what we traditionally uh, defined diversity and inclusions to be? Oh, corporate America is is changing fundamentally. Um, and, you know, to my earlier point, a lot of it has been driven by uh, economics in that um, what you saw in the 1970s was um, a push toward um, representation in that is having people who represented different groups, but who were still very much accommodating of the dominant culture. Um, and, you know, as we've gone through decades now, um, there is empirical research and a lot of consulting firms uh, like Accenture, McKinsey, PricewaterhouseCoopers, they've done uh, the research that quantify that diverse teams actually um, result in better business outcomes. And so once that empirical research that tied diversity to profit um, was established, then corporate America began to take a serious look at the composition of teams as a way to um, better serve markets, but also uh, to attract the type of workforce that would uh, benefit, you know, the overall structure of the company. So I think that there are economic drivers behind that, as well as it being just a social good that companies want to do right now. But I see a lot of change in the clients that um, come through, you know, the firm uh, where I work, and in the concerns also um, of, of the businesses that, that I interact with. Judge, I want to ask you a quick question and then a follow-up. So if you, if you could, uh, do you speak in court with black defendants differently than you do white defendants? 
Not always. There are times when I know for certain that Black defendants appreciate the seriousness of the circumstances and the and everything that is happening to them when you can communicate with them on a level that they can understand and appreciate. What I think is that the work that I do as a judge is way too important to be so very tethered to um, a certain lexicon or vernacular such that I know that it is important to speak clearly and um, what some would call properly and what I've um, been so offensively referred to as, you know, speaking well, I speak so very well, apparently. Um, <laughs> and you're articulate, <laughs> you're articulate too, right? And I'm, like, yeah. and I'm articulate. Wow. Um, and, and so I, I do not let, I, I won't let that get in the way of reaching people where they are. And that for me is for a number of reasons. First of all, being a municipal judge, I think that our municipal courts are our first best chance to reach folks where they are and understanding that it's usually your first experience with the justice system. So it's also our first best chance to give them and to showcase the justice system for how fair it can be in a lot of different ways. And sometimes, you know, fairness means how are you communicating with me? As a judge, are you satisfied if I walk out of this room and I've just nodded my head yes, or I said yes, 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 all the while, but you can clearly discern from my face, my furrowed brow, my raised shoulders, the tension, my clutched hands, that I don't understand a word you're saying. And not only can I not understand you, I can't even relate to you. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. I, I was judge in an Appalachian area uh, with an Appalachian population. Uh, I talked differently to some defendants than I did others because I have a great dichotomy of being a college town with very educated people and people who are dirt poor and very uneducated. I would talk differently to each group. I never thought of that as code switching. I thought that of as a means of communication. If it's based on race, though, is it is it code switching? Do you code switch in court? 
I absolutely code switch in court, but I think the difference between what you describe and what the overarching discussion here is, is that for for African Americans and people of color, code switching is not only is it normalized, it's required to some okay. degree. Um, and and you can okay. choose how to communicate in a courtroom setting, indeed, especially as the judge. But imagine being a young black male in your 20s with a pretty decent paying job. You, you make your own way. You don't get in trouble. But that day you happen to have cornrows in your hair. And the officer just clocks you at doing 10 miles over the limit. And you are immediately reminded of that talk that your parents had with you over and over and over again from the time that you can comprehend that now I have to, I've got to turn on this. I got to reach back to this whole language in order to get out of this thing alive. I've got to sit up. I've got to be, you know, I've got to be a bit docile. I can't be combative. I can't, you know, show my frustration, but I also have to be very clear in my communications. Yes, officer. No, officer. Is it okay or may I have permission to reach over into my glove compartment to retrieve or get the information you've asked for? There are so many things that require in that moment for that young man to be level headed, to suppress the natural emotion of the moment to be able to get from that experience home alive. And that's very different than how do I communicate with you in a courtroom so, so that I can make sure you understand the proceedings. It is it, it's a natural part of, of who, for the most part, Blacks have become because it's necessary. And so we've normalized it because it's necessary. Patrice, you were the executive director of the the Black Caucus uh, in Washington. Um, did you and your group speak differently with each other? Well, the, you know the the most uh, the most interesting. Um, aspect of uh, being executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus. It was a probably the the honor of my congressional uh, work on Capitol Hill was just the variety and the uh, understanding that the caucus at the time had 42 members and was not monolithic in any way. There were members from the South. There were members from the Midwest. There were members from California and um, uh, all around the United States. And so there is culturally, um, there are uh, connections and uh, vernacular that uh, people lapse into when they are behind closed doors. Um, absolutely. And in many cases, it was also a point of release um, because there was very serious work to be done. And I think one of the things that psychologists and others are now beginning to uh, also show is the stress of um, code switching or having that double consciousness, as it, as it was referred to by W.E.B. Du Bois, is that it is a stress 
on the actual um, uh, life of Black people, um, you know, in operating in, in majority environments. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes people would uh, make jokes with each other, um, relax, um, and also have sort of an ease of communication among themselves and among the group uh, because they did not have to expend that extra energy in navigating the dominant culture. Yet, if you go out of those closed-door sessions and go in front of a, a national audience or, or even, even other congressional colleagues, I, I assume uh, the actions and or language would be different. Uh, very much so. Um, but, you know, it's also it is also changing with the uh, newer uh, and younger groups. And by younger, I do mean in their late 40s um, who have come into Congress. And one of the 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 the, the most um, recent example of that was uh, there was a tweet. Um, the chair of the House Democratic Caucus is Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, who um, is from New York, and he was tweeting about something um, just a couple of months ago, and at the end of the tweet, um, as it related to the administration, he tweeted, uh, you about to lose your job. Which was it's a sort of the sort of the bop of the summer um, that uh, came about from a, a, a video in popular culture uh, that sort of took off and became viral. And um, you know, Congressman Jeffries has uh, enjoys hip hop, has made no um, you know no no mystery of the fact that he enjoys hip hop music. He quotes uh, Biggie and Tupac on the House floor, um, and you know, and so I think it really resonates a great deal with um, people across the spectrum, but particularly younger African Americans. And isn't it funny? Um, at least I get a, a chuckle when I see. Um, individuals of that status just completely defy the rules of, uh, of norm and say, hey, listen, you know what? If if I were sitting at home, I would be quoting Tupac or Biggie. <laughs> and yes, I would be, I would do this because this is how I relate to that. And I don't have to hide that. And I think that that is the license, the licensing that so many are looking for, um, especially those of us who've been either in corporate America or in, or in government for some period of time, just saying, hey, listen, you know what? I, I don't, I can, I can coach, which if I have to, if I need to, but I prefer to just be me because I like me. <laughs> and and it, it's easier to be you, I assume, as well. Um, talk to me about, is this uh something that is uh, worse, and I, I'm using that word loosely, is, is it something that is uh, part of black culture to try to adapt to the white European culture? Is it more with blacks than it is with Latinos or, or other uh, groups in the country? Well, not being a member of any of those groups, I, I couldn't speak very intimately, although Patrice might have some insight 
But what I can say is I do genuinely believe that that most groups that are considered foreign, which is very interesting to say that given that everyone except for the American Indians are foreign. Yeah, right. But but that's a conversation, I suppose, for another day. Um, but most groups that are considered foreign or um, you know non-European do struggle with how not only how to fit in, but how to progress or how to navigate and understand that code switching certainly plays a role in that. And it really is that subtle reminder that your heritage is not welcome. So don't bring that. But if you can sort of, you know, align yourself closer to us and what we look like, then absolutely you might actually have a fighting chance. I think I think that, you know, there's a, a recognition, even if it's not a formal recognition. Um, but, you know, I have um, with friends who are Latinx, um, it's uh, they switch very easily between English and Spanish. Um, and I wouldn't speak for the community, but I do, um, I'm aware of, there was a, a study that, that Dr. John Baugh did in 1999. Um, he's a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and he um, found that he, he did a study in California, um, and it was about um you know, rent rentals. He had people call in response to a rental ad and use uh, African American vernacular English or Chicano English, and he found that um, and standard English and and the callers who use standard English were able to get an appointment to view the apartment 50% more than the African-American or Chicano applicant. So I think that there is, as the judge has alluded to, a recognition that um, fitting in or aligning with the dominant culture is a way both to have social mobility and also uh, to protect oneself and to be able to have access to resources, which is, is very important. I'd like for both of you to comment on this. Uh, Again, in doing some research, I I came across a a young uh, African-American man uh, who said that he spends the bulk of his life trying to become a non-threatening person of color to everyone who observes him. I have to say, in checking in, I've been checking in on a lot of male friends um, in this period uh, following the the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, when those, um, uh, when men, black men I've spoken to really begin to delve into it, I think that that's absolutely right. Um, I have um, a uh, 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 my trainer uh, is a young man who's 36 and a former NCAA athlete. Um, and he's a, a tall and athletic black man. And he has mentioned uh, when we were, we, we're having this discussion about when he's on the sidewalk, um, the measures that he goes to to be non-threatening when he sees a white woman on the sidewalk in terms of how he walks, 
um, how he makes noise to ensure that he doesn't startle her, um, you know, how he avoids getting into elevators. And it is heartbreaking. Um, and it, it really repeats in uh, the experience of other Black men that I've had that discussion with, that there is a, a huge degree of energy that Black men have to undertake in order to not be threatening in the larger society. Um, and, you know, to one of the, the points that the judge was making earlier about how this young man um, in an encounter with the police has to really tamp down on his natural inclination to respond um, emotionally. You know, one of the things we have to remember is that there are brain studies that show that even impulse control in young people does not in men, um, actually that those, those centers of their brain that control impulse control don't mature until they're in their 20s. And so, so many of these interactions are with young men who are younger than that. And so we are, as a society, we have judged people um, according to standards that are really quite unfair, as well as this discussion of systemic racism will hopefully um, elevate awareness of the burden that racism puts on uh, Black people and particularly Black men. Judge, any comment on that? Other than ditto? <laughs> I, I think truer words never that's spoken. Good. It is, you know, I would rest with ditto. <laughs> well, let let me ask the final follow up question to both of you, and and Judge, we'll start with you first, and and that is, um, or or let's go with Patrice. Uh, how do we go from here as a society, Patrice? You work in in this area. You've worked on the Hill. You you you're really in touch with where we are as a society. Um, how do we change this? So I think that um, I've been going to a lot of uh, virtual uh, Zoom meetings. I was in a session today um, on a, a conference uh, of an association of women who work in government relations. And I think that there are a couple of things that are going to be really important. Um one is the concept of allyship, and that is that it's going to be very important for people in the dominant culture um, to understand that these factors exist and that they have to be um, confronted and eradicated. And it's also not the job of Black people to do it. We've been doing it for many, 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 many years. And so in order to have any type of longstanding institutional and change throughout society, we have to have allies that are willing to stand up for bias and to confront racism um, and to uh, elevate awareness of their impact and their corrosive impact on the fabric of, of our society. Um, and so the second thing would be intentionality. And that is um, for people to educate 
educate themselves, to be aware of bias and to um, develop the empathy to look at things through the eyes of other people. Um, because intentionality um, is the only way that the status quo is going to be interrupted so that we can form these new frameworks of interaction uh, to become a more fair society. Uh, another, and then the third thing would be taking the view that this is going to be a long process. Um, you know, we have had um, the foundational uh, elements of our country um, in the, even the Declaration of Independence. Um, the issue of slavery was sacrificed in order to declare independence from Great Britain. And so that awareness has to carry through to the way that bias and racism um, is integrated into the very fabric of our society. And it is going to take a long time, uh, dedication of resources, and as I said, for uh, allyship and intentionality in order to ferret it out um, over a period of years. So, you know, I, um, I avoid jumping up and down um, at seeing all of the rallies and everything like that, because I do know that it's going to take a long time and that um, it is also going to take a lot of stamina in order for things to change. But hopefully in time, they will. A quick follow up. Uh, you worked on the Hill for a number of years. Uh, this is something that cannot be changed by legislation? I think that legislation is fine, but empathy and changing people's hearts are also critically important. There is a role for the faith community, um, for people who are not involved in faith activities, but people who are goodwill. Um, and also, you know, I can't overemphasize the importance of, of empathy empathy and not putting the burden on um, the backs of a people of color and particularly African Americans to change it. I think that, you know, we have a long history of, of um, enacting, um, you know, rules from the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments to the constitution, um, to the civil rights act of 64, the voting rights act of 65, um, anti-discrimination in age and education and everything else. And most recently with the Supreme court's, um, decision, um, on LGBTQ plus, uh, population. So our legal frameworks exist what has not always existed is the will uh, and empathy, the long view and allyship in changing um, and in making enacting change. And I absolutely agree. I think that um, certainly acknowledging that this is um, shared responsibility, um, shared a shared burden, if you will, um, allyship is so important. And I think I'm going to coin that that term. So thank you very much um, for, for throwing that out there. I'm going to add that to my lexicon because here's what I do know is that as the, um, the non-dominant culture, that so many of these strides don't and cannot be made without partners from the dominant culture. And we can have these conversations, but the only time that we really move the ball forward is when it's more than just us, more than just black folk pushing the ball. But you have to have some other, some other people there that are 
deeply committed and interested in in ensuring that change happens and that the change that happens is just as systemic as the racism that exists, meaning that if we can devote as much time, effort, and energy into making racism as much a part of American society as it is. So if we're just going to be honest, we'll acknowledge it for the part that it plays in every facet of society. Then I also believe that there can be as deep a commitment to eradicating it, but only when, again, we lock arm in arm to do so. That I think that communities of color have definitely done the heavy lifting um, for a long time, they've worked really hard to to speak truth to power and to shine a light on the inequities that are inherent in this sort of lopsided culture. But that, the, again, change happens when the folks in the dominant culture truly recognize it for the inequity that it is and, and historically the atrocities that it presented, such that this is even a conversation now. And when that actually happens and when that's sustained, then that's something you can't legislate because you'll have people coming to the table because it's the right thing to do, not because they've been told it's the right thing to do or not because it's been legislated that it's the right thing to do or not because there is a legal penalty or sanction for failing to do it. There are some things that just ought to pierce the heart to cause you to do it, um, as opposed to, to, again, being forced in some form or another formally to do it. And so it goes back, I think, Tom, to that discussion that we've had so many times before and that we you know, still sort of find our way, even weaving in this one to, to get back to, which is what it means to not just be not a racist, but what it means to be anti-racism to acknowledge these things as part of just the fabric of American society. The fact that we actually, whether we do it knowingly or unknowingly, but we do place the burden on black and brown and minority communities to conform to something that they normally would not have because they're otherwise seen as the other. And they are um, punished, not rewarded for being the other. And being anti-racist really means taking up the banner, taking up the cause of this and ensuring that there are clear paths to eradication and locking and joining arms to help ensure that those goals are achieved. And I really genuinely believe that our youngest generation now, uh, which I, I don't know that I ever imagined myself referring to a young generation without thinking I included myself, but I've, I'm becoming more self-aware with the days that go by. Um, I had a niece the other day that told me that her mother was old and her mother's not even 40. So I shudder to think of, of how soon she'll put me in a nursing home were she to be able to. But that being said, I, I love the energy of the, young, the youngest generation now that sort of sees things the way they are and wholesale reject them for how they intend to live their life or live out their golden years and to absolutely insist on doing something about it. I think that is amazingly courageous, but it also says that we've done a heck of a job in empowering our young people 
If only we can ensure that they can do it while staying alive. That is the concern that I have. We want to thank Patrice Willoughby and, as always, Judge Gail Williams-Byers for joining us today and talking about this very, very important topic. Patrice, thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And Judge, as always, as co-host, I enjoy your company and your input. Oh, this is always um, a wonderful forum, and I am so honored to have an ally in you, Tom, and um, to be able to count Patrice among my friends um, and mentors who is so insightful and so willing to share the insight of her experience. I'm grateful that you've joined us today. And, and Tom, I'm always grateful of how you utilize this platform to help uplift and enlighten all those who are willing to travel along this journey with us. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with Washington lobbyist Patrice Willoughby and Judge Gail Williams-Byers about the dynamic of code switching. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.